If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Matthew. For the last several months, I've been saying Genesis, but we're going to take a little break on Palm Sunday and uh, on Easter Sunday, and we're going to uh, go to the New Testament and spend some time there uh, this morning, Matthew chapter 22. In just a moment, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. Uh, but I have a confession to make. I, I've found a new TV show that I really, really like, and I'm not sure whether it's appropriate to be watching this or not. It's called Bully Beatdown, and it's on MTV. Okay, we got a little, we got some Bully Beatdown folks in the off, in the, in the congregation. That's good. For those of you that are sitting there going, what are these, uh, individuals talking about? Uh, there, there's a guy whose name is Jason Mayhem Miller. And Jason Mayhem Miller was an ultimate fighter, you know, and they do the grappling and they do the kickboxing and all that. Uh, and they, they get inside a cage and you do it until the one guy, one guy quits. Well, what he did was he took it to a whole new level and he, and he goes out and he finds people that are getting picked on. And, you know, whether it's a family member or an ex-boyfriend or somebody in their neighborhood who's really mean and nasty, and they tend to be kind of really big guys. Uh, and, J- and Jason, what he does is he invites them to come into the ring with a real fighter. And his whole point is, I want to show you what it's like to really get picked on by somebody who's tougher than you and stronger than you. And then hopefully the bully will acquiesce and, and admit that they've, they've done things wrong. And I got to tell you, this is the greatest show ever. I mean, watching these bullies get put in their place is so much fun. If you have any like pent up anger, watch the show. It'll, it'll be therapy for you. Uh, cause all the bullies come in and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna whoop this guy. And you know, I don't care how long he's been fighting. I'm the toughest guy. And then these, these ultimate fighters, they just put them in these holds and, and it's just so great. Um, but, it, what's so much fun about this is to watch these little guys that are getting picked on stand next to, to Jason Mayhem Miller in the ring. When the bully comes in, they're standing right there next to their hero, and they're safe, and they're protected. And then their fighter comes in, they're flanked on either side by, by, by Jason or by the fighter that's going to fight for him, and they're like, okay, bully, bring it on. Let's see what you got. And it's really a great picture of how you know the, the stronger one protects a weaker one. And the reason I, I, I confess that may be sin to you, I'm not sure, but I don't think it is. I think it's redemptive in purpose. Um, at least I'm going to choose to think that. Is because I think when you look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and you look at the, the week leading up to the cross, kind of the way we look at it is it starts out okay, but it really goes downhill for Jesus. He's kind of the one that's getting picked on. He's the one that's getting abused. He's the one that ends up being crucified, and, and you almost feel sorry for him. And we need to understand that that's the exact opposite of what really happened. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to confront the bully. The bully is Satan and sin and death and hell. And Jesus is there to say no more. Jesus is there to say, Satan, I challenge you to try and take my people away from me. I'm going to fight for those who put their faith in me. I'm going to redeem these people. And I've come to town to do battle. And as we stand next to him, we see our hero in action. But he's not, he's not weak. He's not insipid. He's not being abused. He's following this challenging plan of salvation to confront Satan and all who stand with him against the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus offers a, a challenge to Satan. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, the challenge is issued in the context of teaching on the kingdom of God. As we read this passage, the first thing Jesus is going to say is the kingdom of God is compared to, and then he tells a story. The kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of the bully. That's how I want you to think about it this morning. And Jesus is going to help us understand that his kingdom is a kingdom of redemption, that his plan is a plan of salvation 
for those who have been uh, beset upon by sin, by those of us who are broken and weak and can't conquer our guilt and our anxiety and our fears, which is the entire human race, whether we realize it or not, Jesus has come to redeem. In Psalm 130, it says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord, there is, with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy in Psalm 130. But in the midst of the redemption, we also need to understand very, very clearly that Jesus offers a warning. Jesus says, I am here to redeem, but if you reject that redemption, if you align yourself with the bully, so to speak, you will lose. My kingdom will not be thwarted. If you go back and you read Psalm 2, which I'm not going to take time to do, but it says that the nations are all in an uproar and they're taking their, their, their stance against God's king and his, his anointed one. They're taking their stance against the Messiah. And it says that God looks down from heaven and he laughs. It says he holds those people in derision. And then he says to his son, you just sit there until I make these your footstool, until I completely crush them under your feet. Friends, make no mistake about it. The kingdom of God will not be thwarted. And this morning, it is a message of redemption, but it is also a message that bears warning. So with that in mind, Psalm chapter 22, the first 14 verses, this takes place during the week leading up to the death of Jesus. And the scriptures tell us this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent out servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My ox and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Then the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all for whom they found both good, excuse me, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we have worshiped you with our voices as we have sung your praise and the praises of the Lord Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, as we look back into the pages of Scripture and we think about that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem to do battle with the evil one, to settle once and for all the claims of his Messiahship, and to settle once and for all the opportunity for lost and broken and sinful mankind to experience the redemption of God forever and ever. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that you came to confront, that you came to conquer, to establish the kingdom of God, that you came to fight for your people. And you would not be turned away. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning. And we ask that as we look at this word, as we consider this particular story and what it means to be invited into the wedding hall of the king and how that applies to us today, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, my word is not important. My words carry no weight. It is only your eternal word that stands forever. Father, we hear the the philosophies and the musing of man all week long. Father, now we come to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his eternal truth and apply it to our lives. Father, whether it's our first time in a church or whether it's the thousandth time we've been in a church, each one of us have the exact same need. Pray that you would keep me from standing in the way of what you want to say. Forgive my sin. Teach your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As I said, this is a message of both redemption and warning. And actually, the way that the, the story that Jesus tells plays itself out, it begins on the theme of redemption, and then it moves to warning, then back to redemption, then back to warning, and then it ends with the very last verse, I think, being a combination of both. And so we're going to look at it with kind of those general themes in mind of how Jesus is coming uh, to do his own bully beatdown, so to speak, to, to save and redeem his people. It begins with what I'm going to call a glorious invitation. Look at verses 2 through 4. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Do you see that the character of the kingdom of God is a character of gracious hospitality? Do you see that, that God is going out of his way as, as is represented by the king? God is, is represented by the king in the story. And the king is very specific to make sure that he goes out and invites all. He invites everybody to come and to celebrate. The king is in the business of inviting guests to the banquet hall. A lot of people think that God is sitting in heaven with his arms folded, kind of looking down at us, scowling at us, waiting for us to get our spiritual act together before we may figure out some way to be worthy enough to get him to be gracious to us, to get him to maybe let us stand in the, in the outer courtroom, uh, but not all the way in the banquet hall, maybe to stand in the foyer. Maybe if I work really hard, you know, he'll let me kind of be a doorkeeper or something. Here the picture could, couldn't be more different. The king is sending out his servants. He is proactively going and seeking to be a gracious host. Uh, Jordan and I had the the privilege of going down and being on on, uh, Clemson's campus earlier this spring and meeting a gentleman named Dr. Bruce Yandel. And Dr. Yandel may not be known to you, but he's one of the leading economists in our country. I've, I've got a whole sheet on his credentials. I won't, I won't read all of them for you here, but he's, he's a professor emeritus in several places, but he served on the Federal Trade Commission. He actually was the executive director of the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, D.C., uh, and served as senior economist on the President's Council of Wage and Price Stability from 76 to 78. This is a guy who's been in the inner circle of, of power in our nation. He's a person of influence. He's a person of great stature. And he went to lunch with me and Jordan. And he sat there and talked to Jordan about Clemson University, where he's, he's, a, he's a professor emeritus. He was the dean of the economic school. And you would have thought he knew Jordan all his life. 
you would have thought it was maybe like a grandfather talking to a grandson. He took so much interest in Jordan and asking him questions about his high school career and telling him about the benefits of Clemson University. And and 18-year-old boys don't always talk that often. And every time I looked down at the table, they were dialoguing back and forth. And I'm like, in you know, in five minutes, this guy has done what I'm not able to do, you know, in, in 18 years and really, you know, getting Jordan to, to be talking. He's such a great guy, but he's a man of few words. And, uh, and yet there he is with, you know, this king of economics. And this guy's making him feel so at home. That's what God is doing in his invitation, friends. This is a glorious invitation. And notice it's not just offered once, but it's offered twice. He sends his servants out and they invite. And the folks are like, no, we, we can't come. And then what does it say? Again, he sent other servants to stress his point. Maybe they thought this was, you know, in, in, in Jesus' day, you offered one invitation, which said, hey, it's right around the corner. Get ready, it's coming. And then the, 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 the moment that the feast was ready, you sent other servants say, okay, now come on in. And maybe they thought, well, the first one's, it's not quite ready. But the second time, it says, look, the dinner's set. The table's laid. Come on in. He's so gracious in seeking to bring people into his kingdom. This is the king's heart. This is what Jesus has been doing for the past three years. He's been inviting the Jews to accept the fact that he is a Messiah. And it's what God is doing with us this morning in this passage. He's saying that God has a heart for sinners like you and like me. We actually are included in this glorious invitation. But then the story switches to a very severe warning, what I'm going to call an insurrection and an abrupt ending in verses 5 through 7. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, the other to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Notice that there are two responses to this invitation. The first is is a response of indifference. Um, I know you've invited me, but I just don't have time. One guy goes off to his farm. Another guy goes off to his business. And they're not openly hostile. Uh, they're not they're not fighting openly against the king. They're just refusing to submit to his authority and kind of going on their merry way, uh, pretending like they really weren't invited in the first place. But they're not speaking hostily against the king or, or citing any kind of rebellion against him. They simply have no interest in the king or his son. Uh, Charles Spurgeon tells a story about a friend of his in London who would go down to the, the shipyards where ships were being built. And he had a particular friend who owned a shipyard uh, and was responsible to, to have ships built. And he would stop by the shipyard once a week or so, and he would say to this particular friend, how's your soul, friend? This was a Christian man, and he was trying to, to share the gospel with the shipbuilder. And the shipbuilder's reply was always the same. I'm busy building ships. I don't have time to think about my soul. And every time this man would go and ask, he got the same response. I'm just too busy. And then Spurgeon ends the story saying, but he wasn't too busy to die, which he did one day after he was asked the question about his soul. Friends, we need to understand that indifference to God's offer is tantamount to insurrection. It's saying, I don't want to submit to you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But then there is also an uprising against the king and his son. Uh, There are people that put these servants to death. There are people that say, no, I am going to be violently opposed to the kingdom of God. Uh, And they align themselves with the bully. For these folks, there is no hope of redemption, but the king will not allow his kingdom to be overthrown. 
His plan will not be thwarted. We may think some 2,000 years after the coming of Jesus, boy, it's been a long time. Maybe God just didn't get it right. Maybe it isn't all going to work out. Friends, I want you to understand and be assured of the fact that God's timing is perfect and his power is complete and he will bring about his plan of redemption. And you rebel and reject him. You rebel against him or reject him at your own peril. But then we go back to the story of redemption in verses 9 and 10. So the king says to his servants, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I'm calling this the insistent grace of God. It's as if the the king says to his servants, Now leave no stone unturned. Don't pass by anybody. Go out there and anyone you see on any street corner, in any shop, in any marketplace, wherever you go into the countryside or into the city, find everyone you have and offer them a seat at my table. The offer of redemption is painted here very vividly and very clearly as an invitation freely given to all. Notice who show up for this wedding, both bad and good. Now, I know some of you have had weddings for your daughters. I've attended some of those weddings and some of those receptions. I've seen, I've been to some of the galas uh, of the families of Green Tree Community Church. Imagine if you were in the middle of celebrating. You were in a nice hotel, ballroom downtown, and street people just started wandering in and helping themselves to your food and, and, and getting in line in the, in the buffet line. And uh, having not cleaned up, having not looked too good, you would maybe be just a tad bit nervous about what direction the party was going. But Jesus is very clear here to say that the standard by which you enter the kingdom of God is not based upon man. It's not up to you to clean yourself up. You come whether you are bad or you're good. What's most important What is the only thing that matters is the king's invitation. That he wants you to sit at his table. And he is insistent upon that. There's no human qualification here. It doesn't mean that that you have to be smart enough or well-read enough or, or a person of influence. In fact, the Apostle Paul, perhaps thinking about this particular parable, bears this truth out in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, consider your calling, brothers, or where you see calling there, say invitation, okay? Consider your invitation, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's no human qualification. And if you are like me, that might seem a bit peculiar. In fact, if you're honest enough, and I had, as I wrestled through this, I found myself a little bit bothered that God would let just anybody willy-nilly come into this celebration where anybody who goes to a wedding knows you're supposed to dress appropriately. It seems to me odd that there is no standard. But the story doesn't end with the wedding hall being filled. It goes again to warning and then again to redemption. 
And there's a word of warning again in verses 11 through 13 that begin to clarify this question of a standard or, or, or an appropriateness of how you come into this wedding feast. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendant, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, there is actually a standard, but it's not a standard that we provide. It is not a bar to which we attain or, 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 or a, a level to which we live up so that we can eventually say to God, now I'm coming based on my ability. This guest who shows up without the wedding garment is just as contentious against the king as were those who were openly in rebellion. It's as if he said, I know this is your party. I know I'm supposed to dress appropriately, but I'm coming dressed like I want to come and that should be good enough for you. In other words, this man was dressed in his own self-righteousness. This man said, I don't need redemption. I come on my own merits. He thought he was acceptable in God's sight. I was in Top Hat uh, a few weeks ago. Actually, I'm in Top Hat a little more often than that, but I was, this particular story, this time I was in Top Hat Tobacco having a cigar. Um, I was sitting in the corner minding my own business, doing a little writing, and there's a guy sitting on a couch about six feet away from me. He's having a very intense conversation with somebody on the other end of the line about a ministry in St. Louis that he does not like. And he is sparing no expression, no term is, is uh, beneath him to use. And he's saying in no uh, uncertain terms, he does not like uh, this particular ministry. And he hangs up the phone. And I know the guy by face because we're in there from time to time together, but I don't know his name and he doesn't know me. And he looks over at me and he says, gee, I hope that wasn't offensive to you. <laughs> Too late. Um, I said, you know, I, you're not bothering me. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here. You know, anybody can come in here. You, you didn't offend me. Uh, you might offend the person you're talking to. And I said, you know, I, by the way, I think that, that ministry's got some questions. I, I understand where you're coming from. And he says, I believe that God helps those who helps themselves. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, I got to tell you, that's absolutely the worst theology in the history of the world. I mean, he was dumbfounded. What do you mean? I said, well, first of all, it's not in the Bible. And second of all, even if you wanted to help yourself, you couldn't help yourself. And we began a conversation that lasted about an hour and got just about as lively as the phone conversation he had had with the other fella. Uh, although now, I assume it was a guy, it might have been a guy. Although now he's being confronted with his, un his unworthiness and I'm trying to explain my unworthiness to him. And I'm saying, look, I'm a pastor and I don't get in because I'm a pastor. That's got nothing to do with it. And we went back and forth and back and forth and he left firmly entrenched in his rebellion against his need for a savior. There is a standard. There is a wedding garment, but it is not the garment of self-righteousness. And notice his response when the king approaches him. The king comes up to him. You think, wow, now, now I'm standing in the very presence of the king. He was way across the room, but now he's right in front of me. And the king says, friend, notice the kindness of the king. He's giving him one more chance. He's letting him know his disposition towards him can change this whole situation. Friend, and the gentleman's perfectly free to say, you know what, king, stop. I got on the wrong clothes. Let me go change. So how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The invitation is still there. But the majesty of the king leaves the man speechless. 
his majesty, but also his politeness left him nothing but shame. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, to those who are trying to live by their own self-righteousness, is what Paul said. If you're trying to get in on your own merit, this is you, okay? We know that the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul says, if you're wearing your own self-righteousness, you've got nothing to say because you won't ever make it. You will never be good enough to meet the perfection of God. And this man's confronted with the grace and the mercy and the majesty of the king, and he has nothing to say. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great pastor, one of the greatest pastors in the history of the United States, was pastor in Philadelphia from 1920, I think, 27 to about 1960 when he died. And Dr. Barnhouse was on a ship going uh, over to England, and he was sitting at the dinner table, and uh, he asked this question as they began to talk about religion and faith. Uh, he asked a woman sitting to his right, he said, ma'am, if you died tonight, uh, and actually before I tell the story, a lot of people attribute this question to uh, Bill Bright and the, the development of the four spiritual laws, but actually Bill Bright borrowed this phrase from Dr. Barnhart, this question from, from, uh, from uh, Dr. Barnhouse. He said, ma'am, if you died tonight and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And the woman sat there for a moment and she thought, she thought, And finally, she turned to Dr. Barnhouse and said, I wouldn't have anything to say. That's what happens when you're confronted with the majesty of the king. No longer are you comparing yourself to your your family member or your friend or your child or your parent. No longer are you comparing yourself to that person who abused you when you were younger or that boss who just makes your life miserable at work or that person that you see on the the TV news that, that did something terrible to a child someplace and you're saying, boy, I'm glad I'm not that person. That's not how we keep score. God says, look at me. Look at my glory. Look at my perfection. That is the standard by which you either enter or fall. And this man is dressed for dismissal, and he knows that he has nothing to say. He's been invited to come and worship. He's been invited into the majesty, but he has no hope because he's come in his own self-righteousness. That's the thing I love about Bully Beatdown is that those people don't stand there in their own strength. They stand there in, in the strength of Jason Mayhem Miller. That guy, I'd like to be Tom Mayhem Ricks. Jason May- they stand there in his shadow. You know, and they stand there in the shadow of the, of the other, of other fighter that's standing next to them. They don't stand there in their own strength. They don't say, I'm tough enough to take this guy. They say, here are the people that are defending me. And that's what this, that's what this guest missed. He thought he was going to do it on his own, and he was dressed for dismissal. But there's one other sentence in this, in this story that Jesus tells, and it's about being dressed for success. Look at verse 14. The king wraps up this conversation by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting statement, given the fact that the banquet hall is full. There are guests all around them who are dressed appropriately. They're wearing the wedding attire. They, they have been, they've put on that which uh, allows them to be, and they're not being thrown out. Why were they chosen? Why, why were they dressed for success, so to speak? Well, and, and it was customary in the day of Jesus when a, when a noble gave a wedding feast and invited others in. And when he invited them in, there were at the door uh, uh, tailors and seamstresses and, and people who, who worked with fi- fa- uh, fabrics and clothing. And you would come into the wedding and they would say, come on over here, let me give you, the, you look so good in this. And the king or the noble would actually dress you and you'd leave your clothes behind and you would put on a wedding garment provided by the host of the banquet. 
To be dressed for success means that you understand that you can't dress yourself. That if you're going to be dressed in appropriate wedding attire, you understand that you can only be dressed in what the king provides. And what the king provides is the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's the message of redemption. Many are called, but few are chosen. There is redemption for those who stop at the door and say, I have no business coming in here dressed in these filthy rags. If the king doesn't dress me, then I can't come in. And it is also that warning that says, if you're planning on resting on your own righteousness and presenting yourself to the king by your own standard, you will be dismissed to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, the story is a story of redemption. It's also a story of warning. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. We celebrate Palm Sunday today is the day that Jesus came to town, but he didn't come to town quietly. He didn't come to town as one oppressed, as one who is going to be abused and and taken advantage of, as someone weak and insipid. He comes to town to fight for his people. This is the ultimate bully beatdown. And the bully won't win. Because through the cross of Christ, we are provided both the invitation and the proper clothing. Jesus said to the Father as he went to the cross, Give me their filth. Give me their shame. Give me their guilt. Give me all of their sin. I will clothe myself in what they wear on a daily basis. And I will become sin. And in exchange, as Martin Luther calls it, the great exchange, Father, give them my cloak of righteousness so that they can freely accept the invitation and they can be worthy to come and sit at our table and enjoy our presence for all of eternity because they understand that we're going to dress them and they will have the appropriate wedding attire and they can come freely to the banquet of God. How are you dressed? Let's pray.